Article 9 of the Defense of the Augsburg Confession by Philip Melanchthon Translated by F. Bente and W. H. T. Dow This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Invocation of Saints, Augustana 21 The twenty-first article they absolutely condemn, because we do not require the invocation of saints. Nor on any topic do they speak more eloquently and with more prolixity. Nevertheless, they do not affect anything else than that the saints should be honored. Likewise, that the saints who live pray for others, as though indeed the invocation of dead saints were on that account necessary. They cite Cyprian, because he asked Cornelius, while yet alive, to pray for his brothers when departing. By this example they prove the invocation of the dead. They quote also Jerome against Vigilantius. On this field, in this matter, they say, eleven hundred years ago Jerome overcame Vigilantius. Thus the adversaries triumph, as though the war were already ended. Nor do those asses see that in Jerome against Vigilantius there is not a syllable concerning invocation. He speaks concerning honors for the saints, not concerning invocation. Neither have the rest of the ancient writers before Gregory made mention of invocation. Certainly this invocation, with these opinions which the adversaries now teach concerning the application of merits, has not the testimonies of the ancient writers. Our confession approves honors to the saints, for here a threefold honor is to be approved. The first is thanksgiving, for we ought to give thanks to God because He has shown examples of mercy, because He has shown that He wishes to save men, because He has given teachers or other gifts to the church and these gifts, as they are the greatest, should be amplified, and the saints themselves should be praised to have faithfully used these gifts, just as Christ praises faithful businessmen. Matthew 25, 21, 23. The second service is the strengthening of our faith. When we see the denial forgiven Peter, we also are encouraged to believe the more that grace truly superabounds over sin. Romans 5:20. The third honor is the imitation, first of faith, then of the other virtues, which every one should imitate according to his calling. These true honors the adversaries do not require. They dispute only concerning invocation, which, even though it would have no danger, nevertheless is not necessary. Besides, we also grant that the angels pray for us, for there is a testimony in Zechariah 1.12, where an angel prays, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem? Although concerning the saints we concede that, just as when alive they pray for the church universal in general, so in heaven they pray for the church in general, albeit no testimony concerning the praying of the dead is extant in the scriptures, except the dream taken from the second book of Maccabees, 15.14. Moreover, even supposing that the saints pray for the church ever so much, yet it does not follow that they are to be invoked, although our confession affirms only this, that Scripture does not teach the invocation of the saints, or that we are to ask the saints for aid. But since neither a command nor a promise nor an example can be produced from the Scriptures concerning the invocation of saints, it follows that conscience can have nothing concerning this invocation that is certain. And since prayer ought to be made from faith, how do we know that God approves this invocation? 
Whence do we know without the testimony of Scripture that the saints perceive the prayers of each one? Some plainly ascribe divinity to the saints, namely, that they discern the silent thoughts of the minds in us. They dispute concerning morning and evening knowledge, perhaps because they doubt whether they hear us in the morning or the evening. They invent these things not in order to treat the saints with honor, but to defend lucrative services. Nothing can be produced by the adversaries against this reasoning, that since invocation does not have a testimony from God's word, it cannot be affirmed that the saints understand our invocation, or, even if they understand it, that God approves it. Therefore the adversaries ought not to force us to an uncertain matter, because a prayer without faith is not prayer. For when they cite the example of the church, it is evident that this is a new custom in the church. For although the old prayers make mention of the saints, yet they do not invoke the saints. Although also this new invocation in the church is dissimilar to the invocation of individuals. Again, the adversaries not only require invocation in the worship of the saints, but also apply the merit of the saints to others and make of the saints not only intercessors, but also propitiators. This is in no way to be endured. For here the honor belonging only to Christ is altogether transferred to the saints. For they make them mediators and propitiators. And although they make a distinction between mediators of intercession and mediators, the mediator of redemption, yet they plainly make of the saints mediators of redemption. But even that they are mediators of intercession, they declare without a testimony of Scripture, which, be it said ever so reverently, nevertheless obscures Christ's office and transfers the confidence of mercy due Christ to the saints. For men imagine that Christ is more severe and the saints more easily appeased, and they trust rather to the mercy of the saints than to the mercy of Christ. And fleeing from Christ as from a tyrant, they seek the saints. Thus they actually make of them mediators of redemption. Therefore we shall show that they truly make of the saints not only intercessors, but propitiators, that is, mediators of redemption. Here we do not as yet recite the abuses of the common people, how manifest idolatry is practiced at pilgrimages. We are still speaking of the opinions of the doctors. As regards the rest, even the inexperienced common people can judge. In a propitiator these two things concur. In the first place, there ought to be a word of God from which we may certainly know that God wishes to pity and hearken to those calling upon him through this propitiator. There is such a promise concerning Christ, John 16.23, Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Concerning the saints there is no such promise. Therefore consciences cannot be firmly confident that by the invocation of saints we are heard. This invocation, therefore, is not made from faith. Then we also have the command to call upon Christ, according to Matthew 11.28, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and so forth, which certainly is said also to us. And Isaiah says, 11.10, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign to the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek. And Psalm 45.12 Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. And Psalm 72.11 and 15 Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. And shortly after, Prayer also shall be made for him continually. 
and in John 5.23, Christ says, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2.16-17, says, praying, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, comfort your hearts and establish you. All these passages refer to Christ. But concerning the invocation of saints, what commandment, what example can the adversaries produce from the Scriptures? The second matter in a propitiator is that his merits have been presented as those which make satisfaction for others, which are bestowed by divine imputation on others, in order that through these, just as by their own merits, they may be accounted righteous. As when any friend pays a debt for a friend, the debtor is freed by the merit of another, as though it were by his own. Thus the merits of Christ are bestowed upon us in order that, when we believe in him, we may be accounted righteous by our confidence in Christ's merits, as though we had merits of our own. And from both, namely from the promise and the bestowment of merits, confidence and mercy arises. Upon both parts must a Christian prayer be founded. Such confidence in the divine promise and likewise in the merits of Christ ought to be brought forward when we pray. For we ought to be truly confident both that for Christ's sake we are heard, and that by his merits we have a reconciled Father. Here the adversaries first bid us invoke the saints, although they have neither God's promise nor a command, nor an example from Scripture. And yet they cause greater confidence in the mercy of the saints to be conceived than in that of Christ, although Christ bade us come to him and not to the saints. Secondly, they apply the merits of the saints, just as the merits of Christ, to others. They bid us trust in the merits of the saints, as though we were accounted righteous on account of the merits of the saints, in like manner as we are accounted righteous by the merits of Christ. Here we fabricate nothing. In indulgences they say that they apply the merits of the saints as satisfactions for our sins. And Gabriel, the interpreter of the canon of the Mass, confidently declares, According to the order instituted by God, we should betake ourselves to the aid of the saints, in order that we may be saved by their merits and vows. These are the words of Gabriel. And nevertheless, in the books and sermons of the adversaries, still more absurd things are read here and there. What is it to make propitiators if this is not? They are altogether made equal to Christ if we must trust that we are saved by their merits. But where has this arrangement to which he refers when he says that we ought to resort to the aid of the saints been instituted by God? Let him produce an example or command from the scriptures. Perhaps they derive this arrangement from the courts of kings, where friends must be employed as intercessors. But if a king has appointed a certain intercessor, he will not desire that cases be brought to him through others. Thus, since Christ has been appointed intercessor and high priest, why do we seek others? What can the adversary say in reply to this? Here and there, this form of absolution is used. The passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the merits of the most blessed Virgin Mary and of all the saints, be to thee for the remission of sins. Here, the absolution is pronounced on the supposition that we are reconciled and accounted righteous not only by the merits of Christ, but also by the merits of the other saints. Some of us have seen a doctor of theology dying, 
for consoling whom a certain theologian, a monk, was employed. He pressed on the dying man nothing but this prayer. Mother of grace, protect us from the enemy, receive us in the hour of death. Granting that the blessed Mary prays for the church, does she receive souls in death? Does she conquer death, the great power of Satan? Does she quicken? What does Christ do if the blessed Mary does these things? Although she is most worthy of the most ample honors, nevertheless she does not wish to be made equal to Christ, but rather wishes us to consider and follow her example, the example of her faith and her humility. But the subject itself declares that in public opinion the Blessed Virgin has succeeded altogether to the place of Christ. Men have invoked her, have trusted in her mercy, through her have desired to appease Christ as though he were not a propitiator, but only a dreadful judge and avenger. We believe, however, that we must not trust that the merits of the saints are applied to us, that on account of these God is reconciled to us, or accounts us just, or saves us. For we obtain remission of sins only by the merits of Christ, when we believe in Him. Of the other saints it has been said, 1 Corinthians 3.8, Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. That is, they cannot mutually bestow their own merits, the one upon the other, as the monks sell the merits of their orders. Even Hilary says of the foolish virgins, And as the foolish virgins could not go forth with their lamps extinguished, they besought those who were prudent to lend them oil to whom they replied that they could not give it, because peradventure there might not be enough for all. That is, no one can be aided by the works and merits of another, because it is necessary for every one to buy oil for his own lamp. Here he points out that none of us can aid another by other people's works or merits. Since, therefore, the adversaries teach us to place confidence in the invocation of saints, although they have neither the word of God nor the example of Scripture, of the Old, or of the New Testament. Since they apply the merits of the saints on behalf of others, not otherwise than they apply the merits of Christ, and transfer the honor belonging only to Christ to the saints, we can receive neither their opinions concerning the worship of the saints nor the practice of invocation. For we know that confidence is to be placed in the intercession of Christ, because this alone has God's promise. We know that the merits of Christ alone are a propitiation for us. On account of the merits of Christ, we are accounted righteous when we believe in Him, as the text says, Romans 9.33. Compare 1 Peter 2.6 and Isaiah 28.16. Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be confounded. Neither are we to trust that we are accounted righteous by the merits of the Blessed Virgin, or of the other saints. With the learned this error also prevails, namely, that to each saint a particular administration has been committed, that Anna bestows riches, protects from poverty, Sebastian keeps off pestilence, Valentine heals epilepsy, George protects horsemen. These opinions have clearly sprung from heathen examples, for thus among the Romans Juno was thought to enrich Febris to keep off fever, Castor and Pollux to protect horsemen, and so forth. Even though we should imagine that the invocation of saints were taught with the greatest prudence, 
Yet, since the example is most dangerous, why is it necessary to defend it when it has no command or testimony from God's word? Aye, it has not even the testimony of the ancient writers. First, because, as I said above, when other mediators are sought in addition to Christ, and confidence is put in others, the entire knowledge of Christ is suppressed. The subject shows this. In the beginning, mention of the saints seems to have been admitted with a design that is endurable, as in the ancient prayers. Afterwards, invocation followed, and abuses that are prodigious and more than heathenish followed invocation. From invocation the next step was to images. These also were worshipped, and a virtue was supposed to exist in these, just as magicians imagine that a virtue exists in images of the heavenly bodies carved at a particular time. In a certain monastery, we, some of us, have seen a statue of the Blessed Virgin, which moved automatically by a trick within a string, so as to seem either to turn away from those who did not make a large offering, or nod to those making a request. Still, the fabulous stories concerning the saints, which are publicly taught with great authority, surpass the marvelous tales of the statues and pictures. Barbara, amidst her torments, asks for the reward that no one who would invoke her should die without the Eucharist. Another, standing on one foot, recited daily the whole psaltery. Some wise men painted for children Christophorus, which in German means bearer of Christ, in order by allegory to signify that there ought to be great strength of mind in those who would bear Christ, that is, who would teach or confess the gospel, because it is necessary to undergo the greatest dangers, for they must wade by night through the great sea, that is, endure all kinds of temptations and dangers. Then the foolish monks taught among the people that they ought to invoke Christophorus, as though such a polyphemus, such a giant who bore Christ through the sea, had once existed. And, although the saints performed very great deeds, either useful to the state or affording private examples, the remembrance of which would conduce much, both toward strengthening faith and toward following their example in the administration of affairs, no one has searched for these from true narratives. Although God Almighty through His saints, as a peculiar people, has wrought many great things in both realms, in the church and in worldly transactions. Although there are many great examples in the lives of the saints which would be very profitable to princes and lords, to true pastors and guardians of souls, for the government both of the world and of the church, especially for strengthening faith in God, yet they have passed these by, and preached the most insignificant matters concerning the saints, concerning their hard beds, their hair shirts, and so forth, which for the greater part are falsehoods. Yet, indeed, it is of advantage to hear how holy men administered governments, as in the holy scriptures it is narrated of the kings of Israel and Judah. What calamities, what dangers they underwent, how holy men were of aid to kings in great dangers, how they taught the gospel, what encounters they had with heretics. Examples of mercy are also a service, as when we see the denial forgiven Peter, when we see Cyprian forgiven for having been a magician, when we see Augustine, having experienced the power of faith in sickness, steadily affirming that God truly hears the prayers of believers. It was profitable that such examples as these, which contain admonitions for either faith or fear or the administration of the state, be recited. But certain triflers, endowed with no knowledge either of faith or of governing states, have invented stories in imitation of poems, 
in which there are nothing but superstitious examples concerning certain prayers, certain fastings, and certain additions of service for bringing in gain, where there are nothing but examples as to how the saints wore hair shirts, how they prayed at the seven canonical hours, how they lived upon bread and water. Such are the miracles that have been invented concerning rosaries and similar ceremonies. Nor is there need here to recite examples, for the legends, as they call them, and the mirrors of examples, and the rosaries, in which there are very many things not unlike the true narratives of Lucian, are extant. The bishops, theologians, and monks applaud these monstrous and wicked stories, this abomination set up against Christ, this blasphemy, these scandalous, shameless lies, these lying preachers. And they have permitted them so long, to the great injury of consciences, that it is terrible to think of it, because they aid them to their daily bread. They do not tolerate us, who, in order that the honor and office of Christ may be more conspicuous, do not require the invocation of saints, and censure the abuses in the worship of saints. And although even their own theologians, all good men everywhere, a long time before Luther began to write, in the correction of these abuses, greatly longed for either the authority of the bishops or the diligence of the preachers, Nevertheless, our adversaries in the confutation altogether pass over vices that are even manifest, as though they wish by the reception of the confutation to compel us to approve even the most notorious abuses. Thus the confutation has been deceitfully written, not only on this topic, but almost everywhere. They pretend that they are as pure as gold, that they have never muddled the water. There is no passage in which they make a distinction between the manifest abuses and their dogmas. And nevertheless, if there are any of sounder mind among them, they confess that many false opinions inhere in the doctrine of the scholastics and canonists, and besides, that in such ignorance and negligence of the pastors many abuses crept into the church. For Luther was not the only one, nor the first, to complain of innumerable public abuses. Many learned and excellent men long before these times deplored the abuses of the Mass, confidence in monastic observances, services to the saints intended to yield a revenue, the confusion of the doctrine concerning repentance, concerning Christ, which ought to be as clear and plain in the Church as possible, without which there cannot be nor remain a Christian Church. We ourselves have heard that excellent theologians desire moderation in the scholastic doctrine, which contains much more for philosophical quarrels than for piety. And nevertheless, among these, the older ones are generally nearer Scripture than are the more recent. Thus their theology degenerated more and more. Neither had many good men, who from the very first began to be friendly to Luther, any other reason than that they saw he was freeing the minds of men from these labyrinths of most confused and infinite discussions, which exist among the scholastic theologians and canonists, and was teaching things profitable for godliness. The adversaries, therefore, have not acted candidly in passing over the abuses when they wished us to assent to the confutation. And if they wished to care for the interests of the church and of afflicted consciences, and not rather to maintain their pomp and avarice, especially on that topic, at this occasion they ought to exhort our most excellent emperor to take measures for the correction of abuses, which furnish grounds for derision among the Turks, the Jews, and all unbelievers, 
as we observe plainly enough that he is most desirous of healing and well-establishing the church. But the adversaries do not act so as to aid the most honorable and most holy will of the emperor, but so as in every way to crush the truth and us. Many signs show that they have little anxiety concerning the state of the church. They lose little sleep from concern that Christian doctrine and the pure gospel be preached. They take no pains that there should be among the people a summary of the dogmas of the church. The office of the ministry they permit to be quite desolate. They defend manifest abuses. They continue every day to shed innocent blood by new and unusual cruelty. They allow no suitable teachers in the churches. Good men can easily judge whither these things tend. But in this way they have no regard to the interest either of their own authority or of the church. For after the good teachers have been killed and sound doctrine suppressed, fanatical spirits will rise up, whom the adversaries will not be able to restrain, who both will disturb the church with godless dogmas and will overthrow the entire ecclesiastical government which we are very greatly desirous of maintaining. Therefore, most excellent Emperor Charles, for the sake of the glory of Christ, which we have no doubt that you desire to praise and magnify, we beseech you not to assent to the violent counsels of our adversaries, but to seek other honorable ways of so establishing harmony that godly consciences are not burdened, that no cruelty is exercised against innocent men, as we have hitherto seen, and that sound doctrine is not suppressed in the church. To God most of all you owe the duty, as far as this is possible to man, to maintain sound doctrine and hand it down to posterity, and to defend those who teach what is right. For God demands this when he honors kings with his own name and calls them gods, saying, Psalm 82, 6, I have said, Ye are gods, namely, that they should attend to the preservation and propagation of divine things, that is, the gospel of Christ on the earth and, as the vicars of God, should defend the life and safety of the innocent, true Christian teachers and preachers. End of Article 9